Hey everybody, welcome into the podcast. We are back with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode! As you can probably tell, we are recording in a different location than usual, and that location is... Brad's house. I, I was going to say, Bob, I am not actually recording in a different location right now. <laughs> That's true. You're in the exact same location as normal. Yeah, we uh, we managed to get together finally. I'll tell you what, living two hours apart is very difficult. It is quite doo-doo. <laughs> But I'm down in the Columbus area today. We're actually going to be attending the Ohio Craft Whiskey Festival. It's the very first one ever held. So we're super pumped about that. But in the meantime, we thought we'd get together and record an episode to tide you all over before season five starts. Yeah, we uh, always like to take a little bit of a break in between our seasons. And so, but the thing is, we just love talking about whiskey. So, uh We We, really couldn't stop ourselves from recording more stuff. We are truly whores for attention. And so because of that, we we have an episode for you today that's actually, I'm pretty pumped for it, Brad. Yeah, man, I am super pumped. Today we are coming at you with some of our Patreon questions and answers, also known colloquial as Q&A. Yeah, this is the benefit of being a a Patreon subscriber, a, a patron. If you will, a patron of the fine arts that is film and whiskey. Yeah, so we reached out to our Patreon followers and we said, "Hey, we're, we want to do a Q and A episode, and we want it to totally be dictated by you guys." So, if you are getting jealous already, I think the solution is go to our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/filmwhiskey. You can subscribe at three different tiers. Each of them includes some some pretty sick perks. Brad, just make some up. <laughs> yeah, at the at the four dollar. Tier, which isn't a real tier, we get vials of Brad and Bob's blood. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy, man. If you wanted to pay us a hundred dollars a month, uh, that's the name your own uh, name Brad experience. Child. Yeah, yeah. I'm not having another child right now, but if I do, and you're paying me a hundred dollars a month, I, I I'm open we'll to talking to my wife it. about it. Sure, absolutely. But one of the perks is you get to send us Q and A questions, Brad. I, I don't think that we should. Uh, prolong this anymore. We're going to be sipping on two whiskeys today from smaller craft distillers. One is called Hainer Distilling Company. That's out of Ohio, Troy, Ohio, which is down near Dayton, I believe. Yeah, it is. Uh, I am really pumped to try this Hainer whiskey, Bob. I I am always, always on search for good whiskey in Ohio. And I'm not going to lie, it's, it's, it can Slim be tough. Pickens. Yeah. Slim pickings sometimes. <laughs> the other one is from Virginia. It's called Ragged Branch Distillery. They're making some waves in the craft distilling world right now. They just won a double gold. So uh, we're super excited to try their baseline offering here today. But Brad, we have some questions and answers to get into. So what do you say you read the first one for us? Yeah, our first question comes from the Bourboneering podcast. Uh, our friend Austin down in Baton Rouge. First off, Austin... Uh, Bob got to my house today and we were walking outside just celebrating the beautiful 52 degree weather. Uh, and I just, you need to experience a good fall in Ohio because it's the greatest thing in the world. Second off, we're coming to your question. What traumatic event caused Brad to hate whiskey all of a sudden? (laughs) Now, this was in response to the weeks and weeks of Buffalo Trace content we were bringing you. And it did seem like Brad had slowly morphed into Oscar the Grouch. Well, I guess here's my question, Bob. I said that I would remain grouchy towards Buffalo Trace uh, for season four, and in season five, I'd have a new attitude. Well, we're not in season five yet. Yeah. So hanging on to your old can ways. I, can I? Can I still be grumpy? I am think I, so. Am I allowed? 
I think you kind of have come out of the funk a little bit with these uh, Stellum bourbons and the barrels we had the last couple weeks, though. Yeah, I was going to say it genuinely was like a six to eight week span of just getting grumpier and grumpier. It, it, it was really a downward spiral, Bob. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but here I am now. I am just very encouraged by what I got out of Stellum, really encouraged by what we got out of Barrel. And honestly, we also uh, had some fun down at Watershed Distillery recently, and uh, I think we have good stuff coming out of there. So, you know, Austin, I know <laughs> you. I, <laughs> <laughs> I know that highly allocated whiskey is hard to come by, and we have been just incredibly blessed to have the Buffalo Trace product that we have been. But uh, it can go kick rocks, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Austin actually just followed up his question, too, with a more serious one. For real, though, what are some movies you want to review but didn't or won't make the cut and why? Charade. Yeah. So here's it's actually a perfect segue into talking about season five. And we talked about it a little bit on one of our uh, final episodes of the season. But we're going to do something different with season five. Brad and I kind of just made a list of 15 movies apiece that we really want to talk about that you know, may not drive the most podcast downloads ever or may not be movies that are like, quote unquote, great films, but movies that are near and dear to our hearts or movies that we liked when we were teenagers that we haven't seen in 10 years, just like something we want to revisit that we're open to sucking if it ends up sucking and like slash movies that are like really personal favorites of ours. And I think Charade is one that Brad has been like really hounding me to get on the podcast. And I've actually like, I'm pretty pumped to try to try to watch Charade here in a couple weeks or whenever we get around to it, because I've never seen it. And I've been waiting to see it until we do it on the podcast. So it's taken us five seasons to get here. Yeah, I we see who really has the power here, guys. Uh, <laughs> I've asked for one movie over five seasons, and uh, it took us this long to get there. So, uh, Austin, I appreciate your question, but uh, it, it kind of hurts a little bit. Yeah, I will say, like, making up these lists of our 15 movies, I have so many more movies that I wanted to do. Like, I can't wait to do another season five sometime soon. Like, uh, I was thinking about the movie Brigadoon the other day. And, which yeah, I don't know heck, is even a great a musical. I don't even know if it's a very good movie, but it's just really cool to me. And I'm like, that's a perfect candidate for this kind of a season. See, Bob, I, I'm not going to lie, though. I feel like all of the seasons have been created by you. And they, <laughs> there's like at least 10 movies every season that are just like, you know, I just really like this movie. So I put it in here. I don't know. I tried to at least put it through some sort of a rubric where it's like, is it just a movie I like or is there at least like a, a some critical consensus that this is a classic film? Like even a movie like Meet Me in St. Louis is really, really well regarded. It's just not a movie that kind of like moves the needle much. Yeah. Like nobody's seen it. Yeah. And I think they should. And that's why we talked about it. Yeah. It, it's a great. It's pretty good, Bob. It's a good one. You've done that multiple times now where you've said it's a great. And then you stopped yourself and said, like, it's fine. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I I tend towards hyperbole and I've been trying to, you know, work on some self-improvement, uh, find my chi, you know, all, all mm. those kinds of things. Mm. And so I'm, I'm just trying to be more honest about things. Meet Me in St. Louis is an above average film. We have some questions here from our follower, Matt Waldrip, uh, who, uh, kind of along the same lines here. He said, what's your favorite cult classic? What's your favorite B movie? You know, like, I'm not into, like, uh, exploitation kind of movies, low budget stuff that's, like, purposely tongue in cheek. But there's a filmmaker out there today that I, I can't quite remember his name off the top of my head, but he's making B movies 
specifically to be B movies. And they're all really good. They're super violent. Um, the first one he made was called Bone Tomahawk. That movie was freaking great. And then he made one with Vince Vaughn that was called uh, Riot in Cell Block something or other. They're both fantastic. He just made one with Mel Gibson like a year ago called Dragged Across Concrete. And I haven't gotten around to that one yet. But like, if we're talking B movies, I got to look this guy's name up while Brad answers because those things are great. I really hope that like I can buy a DVD box with Riot on Cell Block something or other. <laughs> That's the actual title of the movie. His name is S. Craig Zoller. His movies are great. Uh, go watch Bone Tomahawk. That movie is like wild. Wait, his first name is S. Craig? <laughs> it's like S. Cargo. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Brad. What about you? Cult classic? You haven't seen enough movies, I don't I feel like, that a cult classic would be like standing out for you. Um I mean, when I think of cult classics, I think I think of things like The Room or that's Boondock fair. Saints. Yeah, that's probably a good one too. Like the like those are ones that I love. I, I really enjoy watching from time to time. Uh, my absolute favorite cult classic is the I mean, just it's genuinely a spectacular film, Bob. Um, we we watched it on one of our bad movie bonuses is uh, Velocipaster. <laughs> so here's the thing I have with Velo- I've been thinking about Velocipaster a lot more than any human should. And <laughs> <laughs> the thing about Velocipaster is like it's purposely done that way. Like it's very tongue in cheek. And so it's it's hard to call it a bad movie because it's a really well made example of a movie that's purposely trying to be bad. I also don't know if I'd call it a, like, is there a cult of people out there that watch the Velocipaster? I mean, if there is one, please let me know because uh, I'm in. will join. Yeah. We'll buy robes. <laughs> we'll join your cult. <laughs> they don't have robes. They just have the T-Rex costume <laughs> that he wears at the end of the movie. Uh, so Matt followed up with what is your favorite bottom shelf whiskey and why? Uh, actually, I was just thinking about this the other day, too. Do you remember that I gave Canadian Mist like a 40 out of 50? <laughs> yes. I'm, I do. I do recall that. I'm Bob. telling you, the sample that I bought. It was great. It tasted like uh, like toffee. It was so good. And I thought I was at the liquor store the other day. I wasn't going to buy anything. They had little 50 mil samples of Canadian mist for a buck. And I was like, nah, it's too much. I don't <laughs> I don't want to try it. Again. <laughs> I didn't I, need to go back to it. But though. you can buy a 750 for like four bucks. So that's true. So I don't know, Brad, what's your favorite bottom shelf whiskey? Well, I mean, it depends on where you're putting bottom shelf. Honestly, I would probably put Rebel Yell. Up there, mm-hmm. like Rebel Yell 100 is phenomenal, but I don't know if I'd call $20 a bottom shelf whiskey. Yeah. But their regular version is like 16 bucks, which I would say anywhere into the 15 to $17 range or under is probably bottom shelf. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd put regular old Rebel Yell. Oh, sorry. I think that they just call it Rebel now. Yeah. So uh, I went to the store a few weeks ago and got a couple bottles of stuff we tried like in season one just to see what I thought. So I, I bought another bottle of Benchmark. And I bought a bottle of Ancient Ancient Age. And I got to tell you, man, Ancient Ancient Age is actually pretty good. I think we should try that one again sometime soon. Yeah, I, the ancientest of ages, they were making good whiskey. So, I wish uh, they'd release like an even more aged version and just keep adding ancients to the title. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have the one with four ancients, you're doing it wrong. And the, like the best thing would be if they don't like vary the label at all. Like it's the exact <laughs> same label, but there's just an- more ancients on it. Like, and, and the words are like running off the label. It's just like yeah. tiled in the background. <laughs> like, ancient, 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 ancient. <laughs> All right. Matt continues his line of questioning. Uh, tell the story of your first taste of bourbon. I don't know if I actually, 
Oh, you know, what? I can I can tell you the very first time I ever had whiskey in general, though. I was working at a grocery store and I used to cover people's breaks back in the liquor store. I feel like you would just like sit in the back sipping <laughs> no, on like drink at the, <laughs> sitting at the store. On, <laughs> sipping on Canadian mist. <laughs> but uh, we had this little like uh, drink cocktail recipe book that one of the big manufacturers was putting out as a promo and they were really pushing J&B scotch with ginger ale and they called it a J&G, you know, it's Jack and Ginger basically, but they tried to spin it to their thing. So I went uh, to the bar with some friends and I got it like a whiskey and ginger and I had never had whiskey before. And I was like, I think there's something wrong with I sent it back to the bartender and I tried to use the excuse that like you get when you have a bad beer that you say like it was skunked. I was like, I think this whiskey is like skunked or something, man. I was like, what do you want something else? Like, what do you? What do you want? <laughs> Are you telling me that you sent back a Jameson and Je- I sure sure as hell did, man. <laughs> Bro. I didn't know any better. I was trying to be so cool. It was like a J and G. And he didn't hear me. He was like a gingy. I was like, no. I mean, I guess you could call it a gingy. It's pretty much the same thing. But that was my first time ever drinking whiskey. I feel like a gingy would be if you you like dropped a little bit of fireball on top of a J and G. I feel like a gingy is what you call it when you serve it to a redhead. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just any drink. How about you, Brad? First time ever tasting bourbon. The first time, well, bourbon specifically, oh, I honestly don't remember. What was the first bourbon I had? I, I do remember the first whiskey I ever had. I was like 19. And my brother was home from college for like summer break or something. And he had a bottle of Jack Daniels in the freezer, you, you know, where, where you keep your whiskey. <laughs> of course. Uh, and he pulled it out and my parents were gone and he made me do a shot of it. And we were like literally just going out to like get Taco Bell or something. He goes like, hey, you should uh, you should drink some of this first. <laughs> and I was like, uh, no, no, dude, I'm, I'm not like 21 yet. I probably shouldn't drink that. And he goes, he goes, Dude, just drink it. <laughs> I was like, all right. Sold. So so I so I remember drinking it and I like I took my shot after he had left. Like he wasn't even interested in in like drinking it with me. And so I took the shot and I walked out. And you know how like when you're a kid and you're nervous about like having done something wrong, like your body does weird things. So, like, I couldn't stop, like, awkwardly smiling because I had done something bad. <laughs> and so I walked out and, and Ross, go, <laughs> he goes, did you just did you just chase that with some water, bro? Uh, and I was like, no, no, man, I, I promise I didn't. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That, that was my first ever experience. Wow, I'm kind of sad for you. It's like yeah, really dude. intense peer pressure. Jack Daniels straight out of the freezer. You were harassed into drinking. That's like the the less than optimal way to start drinking whiskey. Yeah, I, that was. And wow. honestly, I think that might have been my first ever taste of alcohol. That like, makes it worse. I just I feel like this is a downer, a downer yeah, of an answer here. It was it was not the best. <laughs> Oh man! Right. Well, our our next question. Let's finish out Matt's question. He has one more question. What was your first R-rated movie? Uh, I can answer this pretty quickly. I was five years old. <laughs> My dad rented the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic Eraser, co-starring I think Vanessa Williams. And I was like, I want to watch this. And my dad was like, ah, f*** it. Like, you know, just sit there. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember anything that happened in that movie. I feel like. And I could just be like conflating things from other movies. I feel like there was either something with a nail gun or a staple gun or something in that movie. 
Uh, I don't remember anything about it. I just remember first R-rated movie. I thought I was like the coolest kid ever. I was like five years old. And I have an almost five-year-old at home now. And I'm like, what in the hell? <laughs> What's my dad thinking? <laughs> Thanks, dad. Yeah, right? I, You know, Bob, I'm not sure when mine was. I, I do know that uh, my wife Haley had very similar experiences to you where her mom would work evenings once a week and get home at like one in the morning. And so her dad was in charge of them. And so, <laughs> A, they would eat either Eggo waffles or cheese on nachos. For dinner. For dinner. For that sure. was that was their dinner. As you do. And then they go to this, you know, the old blockbuster and uh, get whatever movie their dad wanted to watch. <laughs> and her and her brother would watch it. So she's like, what, she's like, what year did Saving Private Ryan come out? And I was like, oh, that was 99. She goes, yeah, I probably saw that when I was seven then. Yep. <laughs> yep. For me though, I don't know. Is uh is like Happy Gilmore R? No, that's PG thirteen. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I probably like Gladiator. <laughs> Brad Brad's like I was thirty when I saw my first time. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched it for the podcast. Right. Uh, it, Gladiator is R, right? Yeah. I probably Gladiator. Okay. In like two thousand one, two thousand two area. Uh, yeah. I I didn't really watch a ton of R rated movies when I was like. Under the age of 10. But I think once I hit double digits, you know, there was some that I watched. All right, man. Why don't you hit us with our next question here? Yeah, we have our friend uh, Aperture Flash, who is the greatest Canadian truck driver in the world. In Canada. (laughs) At the very least in Canada. Uh, What would you say is the best or the worst cliffhanger that you've seen used in a movie? Cliffhanger in a movie. Um, Oh, I have a story. Can I tell a real quick story? No, you have to answer the question, Bob. I mean, it is the answer to the question. Oh. So I went to see the second Hobbit movie, The Desolation of Smaug, which is probably the only... Bob, it's Smog. The only... I've heard Smaug. Smaug. I've always said Smog, and I've always heard the Tolkien nerds yeah. say Smaug. The the way that you hear that you coming yeah. out of your mouth indicates that it's wrong. Okay, good. Because I don't like saying it that way. Desolation of Smog, and there we go. Uh, it, the only good Hobbit movie, by the way. You know, I just put it together that maybe he was talking about like industrialization ruining the uh, the British countryside. Hmm. You hmm. know, smog, the desolation of smog. Yeah, smog. Uh. I don't know if the word smog had been invented though. Uh, maybe he invented it. <laughs> That's where they got the word. It's true. So so anyway, the, the end of that movie is a cliffhanger, and it ends with the dragon Smaug uh, coming out of the mountain and flying towards Lake Town, and he's going to destroy it. And it ends with a close-up of Smaug's face, and he says, like, I am fire. And it cuts real close to his face, and he says, I am death. And there's this really long pause between I am and death. Now, it's a three-hour-long movie. Me and my wife are in this movie theater, and right in front of us is a dad with two small children. Again, too young to be seeing this film. They were like five years old. And this kid had been getting wiggly towards the end of the movie, and I was trying not to pay attention to him, but he was getting a little distracting. And towards the end, he's going like, Daddy, Daddy. And right at the end, Smog says, I am fire. I am. And right in that pause, this kid just goes, well, this is pretty much the worst movie ever. death Death. (laughs) and then it cuts to black and it is the coolest ending ever but it was ruined for me by like a four-year-old kid yeah i was gonna say of those three hobbit movies that is like the only good 10 seconds of any of the three movies yeah 
But uh, yeah, Benedict that, Cumberbatch was really a great choice. Oh, for dude, Smog. his voice was spectacular for Smog. And you're right, man. For all of the things that went wrong in those movies, they nailed the cliffhanger at the end of uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the second movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. I think like Empire has a really good cliffhanger. Like, you know, there's a little bit of resolution at the end, but not much. You're pretty much left with everything hanging in doubt. Yeah. See, even that for me, though, like. I don't know why, but I've never thought of Empire as a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. And like people have talked about it as one of the greatest cliffhangers. You know, Han is captured and Luke's hand is chopped off and they barely escaped. And, and you know, this, the, the, the future is uncertain. And, yeah. I, and I would agree with that. But for some reason, for me, that final scene, which I, I think is a beautiful scene where, you know, the camera kind of pulls out away from the medical ship that Luke and Leia and C-3PO are on. I just think that there was there's something about the fact that they are all standing together. Yeah, that it for me seem like a cliffhanger. Yeah, it didn't hit as hard as a cliffhanger. Well, that's exactly. I mean, like if you really want to get nitpicky about the word, like it 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 should be something where they leave you where the the main character is hanging off of a cliff, or like you know Rocky and Bullwinkle are trying to jump over the chasm and they freeze mid frame and say, "Will they make it? Find out next week." So you know, like I was even thinking about the two towers, which I think. I would call a cliffhanger. It's not really a cliffhanger because you have like the catharsis of everybody else kind of winning small victories. But then you get that great final scene of Smeagol and Gollum fighting with each other and then Gollum pretty much taking over. And you just have the ending being like, yep, let's kill them both. And then they walk off into the woods and that's the end of the movie. I would call that a cliffhanger. Yeah, I, I'm i with you, man. There, there are some great cliffhangers out there. I'm just I'm genuinely struggling to think of any right now. Well, what do you say we marinate on this a little bit while we try our first whiskey of the day? Let's drink this Hainer Distilling Company straight bourbon. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right. So today we are checking out Hainer Distilling Company straight bourbon. This just won silver at the New York World Wine and Spirits Competition. As of right now, this is a sourced whiskey. Uh, It's a blend of 13-year-old Kentucky bourbon and other four- to three-year bourbons. They're currently working with Bardstown Bourbon Company to do kind of a proprietary mash bill. They're aging their own product. It's not going to be ready until 2022. So for now, it's just this blended product. Uh, But Brad, I got to tell you, man, especially using that 13-year-old bourbon, this smells wonderful on the nose. And uh, it definitely doesn't smell young. Yeah, I mean, that that is one of the beautiful things about blending whiskeys is that you're able to find a, I was about to say blend, a, a mixture, I suppose, uh, that does not taste or smell as young as, you know, if you're making your own product. So, yeah, Bob, as I uh, get into this, I feel like it has has some of those classic notes. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of caramel, a little bit of vanilla. For me, I, I'm getting a tiny bit of citrus, like almost just like a little bit of an orange peel. Yeah, there's something it. there's something fruity in here. I think for me, it's kind of coming across a little bit more artificial. Not that there's like something artificial in here, but it doesn't smell like fresh fruit to me as much as it smells like a fruity candy. I'm actually getting like some cotton candy kind of notes on this. Uh, it has really nice, like deep sugary notes on it uh, that are really candy sweet. I will say it comes across a little bit hot for a 90 proof, uh, which could bode for good things. It might not. But overall, it's a really pleasant nose, Bob. Have you been sipping it yet? What, what are you getting on the uh, on the palate? I just took my first sip of it. It reminds me of a major brand, and I can't think of which one it is right now. Like right when it hits my mid palate, I was like, oh, yeah, 
that that's super reminiscent of something. I don't think it's Heaven Hill. I don't think it's Buffalo Trace. So I don't. I mean, who's to say at this point? But it's. I will say, like, just to break it down, I think it's pretty thin on the mouthfeel. The front of the palate, there was really not much going on at all. And then you kick it like to the mid palate. It had some great kind of like uh, like cherry cola root beer type notes for me, which I really really liked. Man, I'm I'm struggling to place this in terms of like where the flavor profile is from. Almost it almost tastes like a Luxro product, but Luxro sources from Heaven Hill, so I don't know. Yeah, I was gonna say for me, it kind of reminds me of like a Heaven Hill Green Label a yeah. little bit. It's it's got kind of a light. I think cola is the right word here. Um, that it reminds me of there's a little hint of fruitiness that makes you think of a cherry cola. But yeah, honestly, it is light. It is refreshing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it is one of the lower proof options that I, I actually really like the flavor here. Yeah, I think the flavor is great. And the funny thing is it kind of smelled or on the nose, it seemed hotter than 90 proof on the palate. It seems lower than 90 proof, but not in a bad way, just in like an insanely drinkable way. Brad, I think this is one of those kind of bottles you could pull out and it would be gone within <laughs> within like a couple hours if you're drinking with a couple friends. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I think I'm pinpointing it. I said it earlier. It kind of reminds me of Rebel Yell. Yeah. Like yep. genuinely, it's got a nice, soft uh, tasting notes. It's not overpowering. And yet there's nothing young about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm I'm a big fan of what Hainer's doing here. Yeah, if you can find a bottle of Hainer, I, I honestly think it's really worth investing in, especially like for the deliciousness factor. It's not really hitting me in like a robust or complex way, but it just tastes really good. Yeah, Bob Hainer is putting out a really good product for their first, you know, kind of foray into the whiskey world. I'm excited to see where they go with some of their own stuff as it, as it starts to mature. But uh, what say you, Bob? Let's get back into some of these questions. Let's do it. Brad, I think I have a really interesting one to talk about here. Uh, This is also from our friend Aperture Flash, and he says, if you could remove the influence of one movie from history on modern cinema, what would it be? You go ahead. I I see you have an answer already. I I hate to say this, and I know that this is not going to win me any uh, popularity votes, but Iron Man. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. Yeah. And I thought for at first, like, oh, maybe you'd want to remove something by a filmmaker that's been canceled or, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of 2001, but even then I'm like, I don't think I'd want to remove that. No. Yeah. And you can see the influence it had in bringing about things like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I'm down with 2001. Honestly, Bob, can I, can I change my answer, answer a little bit? Sure. I would remove the influence of streaming on modern cinema. Hmm. I don't know if I'd go that far. I think Iron Man kind of becomes the default answer because it kickstarted the MCU. But I don't I don't know if you can lay all of the sins of the MCU on Iron Man. I was just looking at a, an interview, the Russo brothers who directed you know, the last few Avengers movies and Captain America, Winter Soldier and all those. They were talking about, you know, we don't really see a return ever coming to movie theaters for independent cinema and like mid-level And they were kind of bemoaning the fact. And it was just so ironic, like how unself-aware they were. Like you caused this, like your, your movies caused this to happen. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say this, that I wouldn't place the blame for any of the MCU movies on the feet of a single director, 
Like, I know that they engaged with the system, but I would almost, like, call Disney the problem more than the Russo brothers. You know what I mean? Like, Disney threw money at them because they were good directors. They made a great movie for Disney, and then they got churned out the other side, and they made their money and their paycheck. And I think that's the frustrating thing about the MCU and, and like, why I would remove the MCU's influence from cinema is because it really has solidified this idea of you can make an above-average movie that has lots of pops and, you know, flair and, and just kind of cool CGI stuff and make billions of dollars. Yeah. And so, I, well, I don't know. And we've talked about this a little bit, but even more than what the MCU has done by only making the movie theater for big tentpole movies, I think I'm most annoyed by the fact that it has changed the the attitude that we have towards consuming or, like, even just towards appreciating film and i think that's one of my big worries like for the next generations moving forward is that everything is designed for them to see something within its first week of release to get really worked up into a frenzy and then to immediately drop it and move on to the next thing and it really seems like we're moving into a stage of of movie history where we're becoming like locusts who just kind of like swarm to something consume it leave nothing behind and then move on to the next thing there's never going to there there doesn't seem to be like any room for reappraisal or looking at something 5 years on. It's like, well we talked about that already and now we're on to Squid Game. And then Squid Game's going to be done in a week and we're going to be on to the next, you know, Queen's Gambit or whatever the hell people are watching now. Yeah, and and that's the that's the frustrating thing about the MCU is that it created this sense of on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. Right. Like what what do you see at the end of every single MCU film? An end of credit scene. An advertisement. An advertisement for their next thing. And so people spend half the time talking about the advertisement more so than the movie that they just watched. Right. And so it's created this culture of things are only good if they can be a series. Things are only good if you can get lots out of them. Right. And and that's like, you know, like half the time they have a surprise cameo from like some more famous superhero. And then all anybody talked about was like, oh, shit. like Iron Man showed up at the end of the Spider-Man movie or like, oh, shit. it's Thanos. And it's like just bringing somebody in to make an appearance doesn't make this a worthwhile movie. Like, I know that you think it's cool that your favorite character is showing up, but it doesn't validate or justify what we just watched necessarily. Yeah, I Bob, I'm with you. I, I think that we could probably belabor this point more oh, in yeah, like we... a Patreon only complaining episode. <laughs> but uh honestly, I, I think we should probably move on to the next question. Which I you know, I'm gonna choose the next question. It also comes from our friend Aperture Flash. In a battle royale style fight, which cast of characters from a Quentin Tarantino film would win and why? And the bonus question is would Bob, you or I, survive a Quentin Tarantino film? I would be one of the first people killed in a Quentin Tarantino film. I don't know about you. Yeah, I... I, I would immediately get shot. I don't think that either of us really have main character vibes about us. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, we're going to make it even halfway through the film. Right. Like, we would be one of the bandits that goes to, like, investigate um, Christoph Waltz's... Uh, uh, wagon 
and get blown up <laughs> at the start of the movie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. I, I don't mind being a uh, tertiary character. Well, let me ask to clarify, how are we going to answer this? Is it which cast of characters? Like if you're pitting kind of like an anchorman, like the battle of the networks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole cast from one movie is fighting the whole cast of every other movie. I, I think I think we should answer two questions. First off, a battle royale would be more of a free-for-all, every man or woman for themselves. Right. I think that's a worthwhile question to think about. But then there is the anchorman question, which is which like full cast of news anchors, I mean movie actors <laughs> or characters would win uh, in a battle. Uh, what, what about battle royale, Bob? What one character would be able to kill off every single other Tarantino character? I mean, I think it's going to be hard to top the bride from Kill Bill. Like, she is a trained assassin who kills other trained assassins and comes out the other side. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think through all his other movies. Like, you know, he has some war heroes and stuff in Inglorious Bastards, but I don't know if they would survive the bride. And then Sh- you've got all Shoshona the, versus the bride. Then you've got all the Tarantino movies that are about like bumbling idiots. So like the whole cast of Reservoir Dogs is going to be dead immediately. The whole cast of Pulp Fiction is going to be dead immediately. Jackie Brown, they're all dead. Like, I think I think Kill Bill is pretty easily going to take the cake here. I think the only person who might beat them would be either Christoph Waltz, just in any character he plays, or I think that Django. Django's if, up there, yeah. If he still had the motivation in this battle of like, if I win, I get to see my wife. I, I think there's a chance Django could pull it out. I think that if it's like the cast of Django versus the cast of Kill Bill, I think Kill Bill still wins just because Django is using 1860 weapons. <laughs> like he has like a rifle that you have to you have one bullet. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> so, so I think Kill Bill kind of answers both questions. Yeah, I, I think Kill Bill is a good answer there, Bob. Uh, which which here's a question. Which movie do you think you would survive the longest in? Do I think I would survive the longest in? Yeah. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because most of the time they just all got high. They only killed the Manson family at the end of the movie. Are, so. you, are you really good at getting high, Bob? I'm really good at not being in the Manson family. Okay. So. <laughs> well, now that uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has been spoiled for me, uh, I think we're going to move on. Let's see here. Uh, we're going to jump back to our friend Austin, uh, the Bourbon Earring podcast. Uh, would you rather be able to watch any movie for free, but you have to drink mellow corn while you watch it, <laughs> or only be able to watch Back to the Future but can drink anything you want for free and unlimited availability. I mean, I like drinking really good whiskey, but I think I'd rather have the variety of movies and just have to drink mellow corn forever. Yeah. I mean, this is the film and whiskey podcast, not the whiskey and film podcast. You always say it like we like there's a hierarchy. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's the first thing that you see when you look at our podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of like the opening title sequence in a movie. I mean, yeah, for me, this is more just like, hey, you can only ever drink like one variety of soda ever again, but you still get to experience all the art in the world or you get no art and you can drink Mountain Dew and Pepsi. It's like, I don't care about that. You know what I mean? Like, what about mug root beer? Would that, would yeah. that convince you? Oh, that was such an Ohio. You said root beer. Yeah, dude. Root. Root beer. Root beer. It's pop. <laughs> all right. I'm going to move on to our next question. What is an underutilized tasting note that you wish you found more in whiskeys? Man, uh, you know, Bob, the interesting thing is I feel like you get notes like this, but it's rare for me to actually really get just a pure butter note. 
Hmm. Like, I don't feel like I get many whiskeys that are just purely buttery. Yeah. And I wish I had more of that. Yeah. I mean, you get that kind of like salty, oily thing, but it really only happens on, I mean, to be frank, like the really old, expensive whiskeys we taste. So maybe that's kind of why we haven't gotten it very much. I like the phrasing of this question that it's underutilized, but, you know, I, I mean, obviously you can't really control what tasting notes go into your whiskey. So I think it's more just like, what do we stumble upon the least that I wish was there more? I, I'm going to go back to my bananas foster because every whiskey we've ever had that had a banana note on it, I've really liked. Like, I don't think we've ever had a banana scented whiskey that ended up being a letdown. Yeah, I mean, I thought that you were going to go back to a funk that you wanted more <laughs> funk in your life because you're from the 1970s, apparently. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, Bob, I'm I'm with you. Banana notes are always unique and interesting. And you're right. We've only experienced it a few times on the podcast, one of which being a banana flavored whiskey from uh, Whiskey Smith. Yeah. So, uh, which yeah. we also liked. Which we also <laughs> liked. So, yeah, bring back the uh, the bananas. All right, man. We have one more whiskey to try for the day. It's this Ragged Branch. Let's go ahead and taste it. What do you say? Let's get to it, Bob. All right, so today we are trying Ragged Branch Virginia Straight Bourbon. This is their signature bourbon, which just won a silver medal at the 2020 San Francisco World Spirits Competition. This is a 90-proof bourbon. Brad, uh, it's at least four years old. I think between three and four years old, it's distilled in Virginia. What are we picking up here on the nose? Honestly, Bob, I am picking up youth and grain. Yeah, it's really grain forward, like in a way that would make me think it wasn't aged as long as it's actually stated at. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a few kind of underlying notes of vanilla. I get a little bit, a little bit of grain. Bob, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not super impressed with this nose, uh, but I'm going to take a sip and see, see where it takes us. Ragged Branch does grow their own corn and rye. This is, I think, a high rye bourbon. So that might be some of that graininess that we're picking up at the beginning. Uh, Brad, I see you kind of shaking your head here. What's your impression? Yeah, it tastes like a really young rye to me. It, it is grain forward. There's a tiny bit of spiciness, but not in a way that impresses me. Um, the The finish is smoother than I expected, but there's not really a lot of notes, and it just kind of leaves a little bit of sourness on my palate once I've finished for a minute. So I, it, it's, it's. I will say this: it's not bad, but but there's not really anything standing out to me. This is like um, this is like a tug of war on my palate. Like I feel like the the good elements of this are trying really hard to pull the weight of it. Every time it was about to go sour or about to go bitter or to taste really young. I feel like right as it was about to kick in, the good elements came back in and kind of pulled it towards the sweeter side of things. It reminds me of, do you know those those candies that are um, the caramel creams? Like they're like chewy caramels with cream in the middle. Yeah, yeah. That kind of had that kind of feeling to me, especially on the back end of my palate where that whatever the cream filling is in that candy leaves a little bit of a chalky flavor in your mouth. That's on here. And I think this has some really good sweetness going on. But you're right. I feel like it's right about the age it needs to be, but with maybe like another year in the barrel, it would really round out and mature in a way that it doesn't feel like it's fighting against itself. Yeah. You know, we, we've had some whiskeys on this podcast that were just flat out not good. Mm -hmm. I, I would not say that about Ragged Branch. No. I think that they're in a good spot, 
to grow and move forward mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. Now, they also have a weeded bourbon that just won double gold. So, like, I would be really interested in trying that, Brad. Uh, but for what we have in the glass here, I would say if they could get this up to, like, a six-year age statement, similar to what we just had with our Watershed uh, episode, I think that they are really onto something and that this could be a pretty phenomenal bourbon. All right, Bob. Well, let's let's get back into our questions here. We have two more questions from Aperture Flash. Oh, no. The person in the theater has snuck some food in from home. What's the worst possible thing the person sitting next to you could have snuck in? Bob, what for you would be the worst thing to see somebody bring into the, the theater? Worst. So I feel like unless it was just like egregiously stinky, I could probably... You like know what I mean? De- like deviled eggs. If they like warmed up <laughs> fish in the lobby and then brought it in, like I, I think that would be a little much. But for me, I think I could probably handle the smell of even like a cheeseburger with onion or something. As as long as it's not noisy. I think it's like what's the noisiest possible thing somebody could eat? Yeah, I I was gonna say maybe the uh the honey, garlic, mustard pretzel things oh that's like a combination of everything that yeah loud smelly yeah that's what i that's what i'm saying like the the bag is going to be crinkly the crunching of the pretzel so that that might be one of the worst even though honestly like they would make a really good popcorn like type snack those things are delicious they're so freaking good good, (laughs) (laughs) so i might not even be mad if i could like partake with them yeah like hey man i can i just have some of those yeah i think it's it's got to be the combination of like the bag is crinkly. The food is stinky. It's crunchy. You know, if they chew with their mouth open, it's even worse. Bob, you you know, for me, one of the worst uh, like things from home that you can bring in is, hmm. and it's because of a bad experience I had. Uh, it's alcohol. <laughs> and I know that that might be one of the most snuck in things to a movie theater that could be snuck in, other than like maybe some candy. Uh, cause I, I don't know. Can you get in trouble for admitting things on a podcast, Bob? Oh, go for it. Uh, as a family, the, the G clan would religiously go to Rite Aid yep. and purchase all the of our $1. candy. Oh yeah. oh yeah. Before going in. And my mom would keep it all in her purse. Absolutely. It probably might be the most evil thing Barb G has ever done. Pretty much. Uh, but for me, I remember going to see, uh, Star Wars, the force awakens in, in a theater in Boston, right before I moved to Kentucky, like, Literally, we were moving December, uh, I think it came out the 17th. So, like, we were moving on the 18th, and we were at the theaters watching it on the 17th, because I was super pumped. And the dude sitting in front of me just had a, a, a mason jar of clear liquid, enough to the point where I could smell it when he opened it, and I was sitting behind him. And the dude was so loud by by the end of the movie, just... <laughs> Like, fa- like trying to whisper to his, you know, the person he was there with. But, you know, y- you know what happens when you get drunk. You get a little bit loud. Uh, so for me, I would have to say alcohol because it causes you to be loud and you don't even realize it. All right, man. We have one more question left. I think that this is the only question we could end on. Brad, do you want to introduce this one? You get to replace one character in a movie with a dog. Who is it? I want you to go first because I can't think of a good one yet. I think... That if you replaced Samwise Gamgee with a golden retriever, like it would just be the exact same movie. All right. So here's the thing. It, if we replace a character with a dog. It, is it three, like a talking dog? That's the thing. There's three options. First option is the dog makes no noise and you just kind of have to like, he's like goading on. Wait, it doesn't even like bark or anything? No, not really. Okay. Well, it can bark, 
but it can't be like but bark- only if somebody's fallen down a well well then the second option is the dog doesn't actually speak english but it's like <laughs> like it it talks but in barks so it's a cartoon dog yes. in a live action film the third option is the dog speaks english or whatever language the movie's in do you, do you think that we could have one where it's like uh homeward bound <laughs> where the inner monologue the, yeah like an inner monologue dog so that that raises a lot of questions because i was thinking like for example <laughs> What if, what if we replaced Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction with a dog? Okay, <laughs> so let's in Pulp Fiction with a dog. So let's go through the options here. Option one, like that last monologue he has with Tim Roth, there's no sound at all. It just cuts back and forth between <laughs> him and Tim Roth. Yeah, there's no sound. The second option, he's he's delivering this really beautiful monologue, but it's just like. Rah, 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 rah. <laughs> so wait uh, th- the second option is it a human doing what you're doing or is it no, an it's actual a dog it is a dog making noise making noise okay the third option it's a dog that they're like cgiing the mouth and there's words coming out of his mouth no no so no there's a dog pointing a gun saying like and i will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious and then the fourth option is just there's no it's like option one, but you just put Samuel L. Jackson's voice as the inner monologue. See, I, I think that we need to change option three a little bit. First off, it's 1995. Pixar isn't created yet or ba- <laughs> just barely started. So there's no such thing as CGI. It's the dog barking, but they dub out the sound of the dog barking and dub in Samuel L. Jackson's voice giving the speech. Sure. Uh, so I'm in on that. Uh, the The big question would be what kind of dog? I think that for for your recommendation of uh, Sammy Sammy L in Pulp Fiction, I think that Sammy L. <laughs> I think that you need to use like the carpet dog that has like the really dark hair that like do you know what I'm talking about? What is a carpet dog? It, you know, let me let me pull up a picture since we're in person. Yeah, this isn't a thing. There's just pictures of dogs laying on carpets. This one. Oh, like the really long haired terriers that you see on like the Westminster dog show. Yeah, no, apparently it's called a Pooley, P-U-L-I. Uh, go look it up if you're listening right now. I think that we need one of those dogs running around, like driving the car when the dude gets shot. <laughs> like, I think that would be perfect. <laughs> the dog just looks at Samuel L. Jackson and says, oh, man, I just shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> Uh, all right so i think i think we pretty much decided that we should just replace most of the main characters in pulp fiction with with dogs dogs. yeah 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 100 percent. there's like a there's like a really prim and proper dog playing uma thurman who overdoses (laughs) on heroin (laughs) foaming out of the mouth (laughs) oh my gosh oh man are there any other movies what other movies would fit for replacing the main character with the dog see i mean like there's ones that would be like inappropriate and funny but like we're not gonna explore like replace Oscar Schindler with a dog. Like it's not. Gonna, <laughs> I don't know if we're gonna do that. I think that we should replace Humphrey Bogart with a dog, with like a bulldog, in uh, in, in, Casa, in Casablanca. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. that would be worth it. I would want it to be Humphrey Bogart. Uh, no, I want it to be Walter Houston in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, <laughs> with like a Saint Bernard. 
<laughs> All right, guys, we are devolving quickly here. We're going to wrap up for the day. This has been so much fun. Thank you for sending us these mailbag questions to answer. Thank you to Hayner and to Ragged Branch for the samples of whiskey. We'll be back next week with another bonus episode to tide you over until season five. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. <laughs>